This is Living Lean, the show that teaches you how to apply the science of nutrition and training to sustainably create your leanest, strongest body and build the most confident version of yourself. I'm your host, Jeremiah Bear. Let's get into the show. All right, what is going on? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Celeste Rains Turk. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me. When I listened to your episode with Caroline, I was like, this is so awesome. And then when you reached out, I was like, this is even more awesome. <laughs> so like I said, um, I've had a lot of people hitting me up via DM, especially asking about like, yo, how do I improve my relationship with food? So straight up to provide my followers, my listeners as much value as possible. I wanted to bring on someone that I knew was more of an expert in this than I am. And as you mentioned, I'd heard Caroline gush about you. So that's exactly why I reached out to you to come on the show. So we'll get a bit ahead of ourselves. So give us a quick intro on who you are and what you're up to right now. So I'm, I'll start with where I'm at and what I'm doing and then kind of work backwards from there. Um, right now, I am earning my master's in clinical mental health counseling so that I can pursue a path to licensure as a counselor or, you know, a therapist, whatever you want to call it. Um, it the terms are interchangeable for the most part in most places. Um, and this was inspired after I finished my degree in psychology. And I knew that I just, I kept seeing myself doing more and serving on a higher level. And my ultimate vision is to bridge the gap between athletes, the fitness industry, competitors, and mental health professionals. And I knew the only way I could do that is if I got, if I made sure I was at the top in both industries, really. And so I decided to commit to continuing my education further and started my psychology degree because of my own journey, which was, you know, fitness was something that help me to find confidence and love myself more and get through depression and anxiety. But it was so much more than that. And I didn't realize how important it was to focus on the mental side of things and the inner work until after my very first competition. And I was going through a lot of post-show rebound, binging, negative relationship with food, a distorted body image, all of which was present even before I started competing. So my journey kind of evolved from all about fitness and nutrition to all about mindset and personal development to now psychology and supporting others in that journey too. I love that. And I feel like there's such a big, that's where the biggest gap in the fitness industry is, I would say. I think that most coaches come in to the industry thinking like, hey, to help people, I need to learn how to prescribe really good macros and write really good training programs. Where like truly the gap of it for most people, or at least I know for me personally, the most I've been able to help clients is when I really dive into like the psychology of all these different So I love that that's where your head is at as well. Thank you. Yeah, I'm 100% on board with that too. Like it's it's one thing to be really good at training and nutrition. It's another thing to be a really good coach and mentor and support system. And unfortunately, there's so many coaches in the industry who I think are actually creating more problems than they are solving. And (laughs) <laughs> that's makes my job both really rewarding and very challenging at times. Um, but at the end of the day, like I agree with you, it's definitely shifting. And I think more people are becoming aware of that. I love it. So I would love to dive into your backstory a bit first and foremost. Tell us kind of how you got where you're at today. You seem like someone who's very passionate about really helping people 
love their bodies and kind of healing their relationships with food, so to speak. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but can you kind of tell us how you got here? What led you to being so passionate about this? Yes. Okay. Long story short. <laughs> Take as long as you want. Also. <laughs> okay. So essentially back in high school, I was really struggling with depression and anxiety and I was getting a lot of anxiety from my depression. Actually, I didn't know when it was going to hit me. I didn't know when that darkness was going to come out. And that was really scary for me to be almost like afraid of my own mind and my own self. And this isn't uncommon in adolescence, but it was definitely not, it didn't really match up with the life I was living. I was an athlete. I was a straight A student. I have a great family, great upbringing. I live in amazing community. So there wasn't lots of adversity, you could say, which is arguable also, you know, contributing to that. But that's besides the point. Um, Then after this happened, you know, I was really struggling with depression. I knew I needed an outlet. I went through a breakup actually. And I remember in that relationship, the guy was giving me these one pound chocolate bars every month we were together. And back then I didn't know much about nutrition or training. I was just playing volleyball (laughs) and I would eat them every month. And then after that breakup, I looked in the mirror one day and I was like, oh my gosh, like I don't feel confident in my skin. I've been cheated on. I've been lied to. I've been let down. And then I was going through these different relationships that weren't fulfilling. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, how can I expect anyone to treat me a certain way that I want to be treated if I'm not even treating myself that way. And imagine how much better of an athlete I could be if I was training and on top of my nutrition as well. So there was two parts to that. It was like, I want to be a better athlete, want to love myself. And I guess you could even say that I wasn't very confident in my skin. I, I know I wasn't. I was hiding, you know, behind towels and clothing. And um, I put on that athlete identity more often than anything else. And um I did end up getting therapy and support when I was 18, actually, through my depression and through my anxiety that really opened my eyes. And I didn't leave that session like, I want to be a therapist. No way. I definitely didn't feel that way. Um, But I had become really passionate about fitness and nutrition. However, it manifested, unfortunately, in a very negative way at first. I started training every single day from home. as often as I could. And I was demonizing foods. I made a connection between like chocolate and like being unhappy with my skin or um, eating a certain way. And I started restricting a lot of foods. I started to hold back in what I was allowing myself to eat in an effort to get smaller and smaller. And I honestly thought like the whole calories in versus calories out thing. Like I genuinely thought every time you eat something, you need to like go and work out and move. So I would eat like, let's say a meal, a good size meal. And I would say, okay, now I have to do 25 minutes of hit. I eat a snack and I'd be like, I have to do 10 jumping jacks. So this was like a lot of exercise abuse, very disordered eating. Then, you know, I still loved it. I uh, got a job to pay for my first gym membership. And that kind of got me into a different mindset. And I hired um, a coach in the industry who put me on like my first program, but it was very restrictive, which was fine with me because I was already restricting so much, but it led to binging on the weekends because I was given a free meal. Um, And then this evolved to, well, if I can do this, I can compete. Then I started competing. And after I got into competing, like I said, I had a really 
bad rebound after. And that's when it, I kind of had all these things start revealing themselves to me. Oh, wow. This is so much deeper than surface level. Fitness is about, you know, my mission now is building more than just a body. And that's where it was born. Right. And um, after that experience, I knew I need to focus on self-love. Started doing that. Started my business as well. Found out about more personal development, mindset work. Um, stopped pursuing a degree in dietetics, shifted to psychology, and then the rest is what I said before. So that's really how I got here and why I'm so passionate about it because I've been there and I've done that. And now I've invested so much time and energy into learning how to help others through it. I love that so much. I feel very much just from hearing you describe your story, it literally sounds like you were like trapped in a prison. Yes. And I think that most anyone, like, it's so dope, too, that you can relate to your clients, like, helping people through these issues to that extent. So that's super cool to me. Um, Can you kind of, because I feel like it is somewhat blurry, can you give us your best definition of relationship with food? Yeah, it definitely is blurry because there's... There's disordered eating, there's eating disorders, and there's relationship with food. And I can't claim to treat eating disorders necessarily, right? So that's not something like I can't qualify myself as an eating disorder specialist. As much of the reading and the knowledge and the background that I have in it and what I'm pursuing, um, it's just different ballgame and there's a lot that goes into it. Relationship with food itself is when you think about how you think about food, how you think and feel around food. How do you define your eating behaviors? Um, What's driving those eating behaviors? Are you walking into a party just immediately tunnel vision on the food table or finding yourself almost like your heart is racing when you're told it's time for a cheat meal and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to have something or someone's offering you a cookie. You know, you have these physical responses. So your relationship with food can lead to disordered eating. It can also be a product of disordered eating as well. Um, But most of the times, especially in the fitness industry, sometimes it's full-blown eating disorder, in which case, you know, we have a problem where the mental health professionals, I don't think, are respectful of what people in the fitness industry want to achieve, which is where I fill the gap. Um, But essentially, your relationship with food is like how you interact with the food. Okay. Okay. Perfect. And then if you don't mind, would you just list off like how you most commonly see a poor relationship with food manifested? And straight up, I have a whole list of like, okay, dive into this, dive into this, dive into this. So don't feel like it has to be insanely comprehensive, but just like the most common ways you see this manifested. Um, Are you asking for the way that it looks when someone's struggling or the way that um, it starts and someone starts struggling? So typically like the way that this can start. Um, So I'll give like three, um, just to kind of give us a launching pad, but like restrictive dieting, um, obsessive macro and calorie tracking, and then body image related associations with food. Okay. Okay. So let's start. Would you combine like restrictive dieting and macros or not necessarily? Um, yes, yes. And no, I think like restrictive dieting is when you're on like a meal plan where you have to eat X, Y, Z foods and nothing else. And people on macro diets tend to say to me, I'm not restricted. I have flexible dieting. I eat whatever. And I'm like, well, are you able to eat something without tracking it? No, I can't. That causes me so much anxiety. I wish that I could. Okay. So yes, you're restricted. (laughs) So that's the perfect example then. So straight up, I would love if you could just talk us through 
okay, here's how I typically coach people through a scenario like this. So let's start with that. Like, I'm guessing that, and along with the mindset side of things, you work with the clients, like nutrition training as well, correct? Um, I actually don't give anyone nutrition plans. Um, my goal is to help them have more adherence with their coach's program or what they're looking for. Unless they're like, I want to learn to intuitively eat and I'm no longer working with a coach. I might be like, let's start with mindfulness practices or let's use from past experiences. But nope, I don't do nutrition coach. I want to compliment the coaches in the industry with their okay. success. That is super cool. And again, some of those very much needed. Um, but I'm guessing basically you kind of have this camp that thinks yo, macros, no matter what, they're obsessive. Like that's unhealthy. And I'm guessing you don't follow that camp. No, I think macros is fine. I think res- I think restrictive diets or meal plans are fine. I think the path to the, the end result, there's so many different ways to get there. But mm-hmm. what I have a problem with is the thought process in committing to that or the intentions behind it or how someone feels and where it's coming from. Because someone on a meal plan to resolve gut issues may have a very different relationship with food than someone on a meal plan to uh, lose a certain amount of body fat. Right. hundred percent. Okay. Okay. I love it. So basically it all comes down to context and that's, that's the most important thing I want to make sure. Because again, like, I feel like there's so much, like no one should follow meal plans or no one should follow macros or anything like that. But so much is like, it very much depends on the individual and truly like where you're coming from, what your intentions are with this. So again, taking it back to our initial example, that's just something I wanted to make sure it was clear before we dive into like this specific example with macros, because I didn't at all want to frame it as macros are always bad. Like no one should track macros because like, most of our, most of my clients track macros. And again, like it sounds like something you support as well. Generally. Yeah. But, um, so this client that is, okay, I feel like I can't eat any foods without like tracking them or making sure I hit my macros at all. Just in general, how do you go about addressing that? So if there's someone who wants to be able to eat something without tracking and they want to be able to get to a place where they're not overwhelmed, let's say going to a situation out to eat at a restaurant where it's not perfectly tracked or they're having something that's not to the T or they don't know for sure, like let's say it's a baked item, then I would encourage them to really evaluate, first of all, what's their belief about macro tracking to start with? Um, If we don't understand why we're doing something we're doing, it's going to be really difficult to actually change that behavior. So always starting with what is your current belief about this choice and why are you choosing that? Um, Usually that can give us some more insight into what's next. So let's say they're like, well, because I want to, um, I want to lose fat. I want to build muscle. And this is like what my coach has given me. And I feel like I'll disappoint them if I stray off of it. Okay. okay, then I'd encourage them to talk to their coach about the expectations in place and also understand if this is something they can sustain. My guess is they don't feel they can if they're struggling to, you know, with the idea of not being able to have something untracked. The next thing is something called exposure therapy, which um, is what inspires this next activity. It's where we do small exposures to stressor or to the fear. So if they are struggling with their, let's say a baked item down the street where they go and they write in the mornings, well then, okay, let's start with having one of those each week or one of those each day. The more we can do it and expose ourselves to that stressor, 
the more resilience we'll create and the new associations we can form. If we just say, throw it all away, never use that again, never have it, we're running from a problem that's going to catch up to us. So that's really like, I guess, a three-pronged approach, but that's the end result is I want to get them exposing themselves to what they want their reality to be. Right. Okay. Okay. I love that. Um, is that always a context of where like you push someone to, Hey, I'm going impl- to implement this, but we're not necessarily tracking it. Or are you sometimes like, yeah, I want you to actually just like, s- I'm guessing this is more about, this is more related to untracked views as a whole than like, I'm scared of this specific. Correct. Yeah, exactly. And now if it's like, if it's a big time that isn't perfectly tracked and they'd like to still be able to have it without feeling guilty, then it's like, it comes down to identity. Like, do you believe that in order to reach your goals, you have to have this thing perfectly tracked, in which case we address identity issues um, or maybe where's there's resistance between the identity and the behavior. But for someone who is following a strict macro plan, like let's say they're in competition prep, well, that you either are going to sacrifice five weeks of progress potentially. And that's like another thing to consider is rather than take a 10 week approach that you hate and you dread, take a 20 week approach that you actually feel really good about and really aligned to, and that you could continue for 30 more weeks down the road. And I think a lot of people struggle with, they see what they think is best in the industry. And like, I should be doing that, but they don't consider What's going to help me long-term? What do I need long-term? And then setting those standards with your coach. Right. No, 100%. And I think truly that's that conversation all comes down to understanding your trade-offs, right? Like, okay, if you, the reality is like, if you're doing a 10-week show prep to achieve what you want, you're just going to have to be pretty damn restrictive. And I think that's also where like oftentimes it gets, I think sometimes this can get confused to like, okay, I need to have a super healthy relationship with food and like be super flexible and like not stress working these foods in, but also I'm in the middle of a 10 week show prep and it's like, well, something does have to give here, which again, I think is sometimes where things get a bit twisted. Yes. And it's like, in those cases, we should focus on beliefs and we should focus on perception and meet and really coming off of autopilot. Like the number one thing I see with people in these kinds of competition preps is they're just on full on autopilot. There's no mindfulness at all. And research shows us that when we have a mindfulness-based approach to eating, we're going to be more likely to make positive decisions for ourselves anyways, and less likely to overeat, less likely to undereat. We're going to understand our decisions more. So if your coach tells you, okay, you know, get ready, you're going to have, you know, your bro diet, chicken, rice, and broccoli or whatever, for example's sake. And you're like, okay, great. Another one of these meals are oats and berries and protein powder. Okay. Eventually, you know, you're just waking up and you're eating and you're, you see it all the time. Oh, food's just fuel at this point. Doesn't matter now. Okay. Shut up. It does matter. Food is an experience. Like it's okay to want to experience your food. And that's where we go. Let's focus on how do you get satiated through the senses? How are you engaging with your food? What do you know to be true about this food in your journey over the next 10 weeks? Now we're not just doing it to get to the stage. We're doing it because we're choosing it just as much as our coach knows it's best for us too. That's dope. I feel like that's so applicable for both ends of the spectrum. So then moving on, diving into another one that I'm sure you address commonly. Someone that's struggling with binging. And I'm guessing this is something that you could go very broad or very deep on. But just generally, like, what are your action steps here? How do we kind of go about addressing this? So 
Binging definitely can go many ways, like you said. So I guess a more broad approach would be, again, identifying where the binging is coming from. Is it to fill a void or is it because there was restriction or is it because there's like some actual like restrictive caloric need, like the body is having a response, like we need this food. Um, So understanding the root and then going through the mindfulness-based practices too. Like I have all my clients do a full meal time ritual where they're really understanding the choice that they're making. This also serves as like a nice pattern interruption because right before they go to eat, if they know they have to write this down, oh my God, no, I don't want to think about it. And they, and they start to realize, you know, I don't actually want that food. I don't actually want it to make me feel this way. And I know it's not going to benefit me in this way. Um, so I would say with binging, there's a lot of different poses. I also think that, in this case, we have to be really mindful of the body and the self-worth. Um, sometimes it's coming from a place of, I don't believe I'm worthy of the results I've created. Therefore, I'm going to undo them in this way that I know. Or, oh, that felt really good to do that time. And I'm not coping with these other areas of my life. I don't have an emotional health or emotional well-being. So it's not always just, let's address the food. Sometimes I do have to go into like, where's the emotional gap? What do we need to look at? or you know, was there restriction involved that, you know, now we need to use exposure for? Okay. Okay. So in the case of someone where let's say rather than, Hey, I just got shredded for a show and <laughs> straight up, I just need to eat more. I need to gain some back to get back to a healthy place. Let's say someone that's really struggling with binging and this isn't allowing me to even get lean to the point where I feel like relatively comfortable and we're kind of, thinking this is probably related to more of an emotional issue. How do you go about delving into that? Like identifying where that's actually stemming from? Yeah, definitely. So if it's an emotional issue, identifying the emotion and getting comfortable with recognizing them when they come up is something that I like to encourage my clients to do, like actually acknowledge the emotion and give it a label, you know, label that emotion, define it, sit with it rather than running from it. Because if we're turning to food, it's because we're running from the emotion in some way. Maybe we're scared of you know, what it's going to teach us or show us about ourselves or eventually have to address. And so knowing that we can say, how can we get comfortable with sitting with the emotion rather than seeking? And and this can be any unhealthy coping mechanism. It can even be exercise abuse, right? Um, So just being mindful of the actual feeling that needs to be addressed. Okay. I love that. Something relatively similar. I think the most helpful thing I've found in scenarios like that is setting up with clients and if then state. So very much tying into like what you're saying here. Okay, can you identify like the specific emotion that you're normally like experiencing around whatever when you go to eat? Okay, like it's it's anger. Okay, cool. So we're gonna set up if I feel anger, then before I do anything else, whatever it might be, like a mantra. I'm gonna go for a five minute walk. I'm gonna take like five deep belly breaths. I've I feel like it, in addressing things like this, just like simple things like that truly seem to and similarly it could just be a pattern interrupt um i'm sure you would understand the science of that much better than i do but i found that to be super helpful that is exactly it like that's literally i'm so glad you do that with your clients and i applaud you for doing so because it shows you're very aware of their needs and this is like something i like to give clients is like a food and mood chart where they're identifying those moods and other ways to fulfill it and what you said too about like, here's the action plan for it is so good. Now I know there's people listening who are going, 
well, I won't feel like doing that in the moment. Well, guess what? Like if you want to move and change and step forward in your life, you're going to have to have conscious, consistent effort. And when we subject ourselves to stress, like honestly, you guys, if you can remember, subject myself to stress, okay? That is going to build resiliency and new habits. Just like you've built the habit of turning to food, you can build the habit of taking belly breaths. Like it really has to be a conscious effort. And don't come at us with this. I can't do that. I can't. There's so many ways. If you can remember to take your dog out for a walk or you can remember to go to the gym or pick your kids up from school, hopefully, or whatever it might be, take a shower, you can remember to take care of yourself too. So let's dive into a very similar one, mindless eating. Yes, <laughs> mindless eating. Well, if we're being mindless, we need to be mindful. <laughs> so I think that, you know, mindless eating is something that's especially common when people are like stuck at home or when they're around the kitchen or they are at work and someone's got like, you know, the M&M thing next to them, whatever. So when we're eating mindlessly, is it to keep ourselves like busy, almost like a fidgeting type of thing? Are we avoiding something else? Is it because we're putting ourselves in an environment that's conducive to mindless eating, which is usually really common? Like, oh, every night I sit in front of the TV and I watch Netflix with my bowl of popcorn. Well, now of course that's going to feel mindless because you're not thinking about the food you're eating. So one really tangible tool I like to give people to use for this is having an undistracted meal and making a habit of undistracted meals. doesn't mean you can never sit and watch TV while you eat. It doesn't mean you can never go on your phone while you eat, although those aren't always the best habits, but we want to create an environment conducive to the results you seek. And when you eat mindlessly or when you eat from, you know, any other emotion or stress, we're not setting ourselves up to digest and get the most out of our body's needs or the nutrient we're giving it. And that also then goes back to self-love, you know, coming from a place of self-love, anchoring yourself into self-love from the beginning of the day and throughout the day. So you're more likely to take those choices that are considerate for getting the most out of the nourishment you're giving your body too. Okay. I love, I love the angle that you approach that from also. I feel like that's super helpful from a mindset perspective. Um, a few other things I feel like mindless eating, I've generally found like a pattern interrupt type thing will, and I don't even know if I'm using that phrase pattern interrupt correctly, but typically we'll say like, okay, let's say you struggle with mindless eating. Like let's identify one. When does this typically happen? So like, okay, at three every day, I mindless eat. Okay, so like I want you to set an alarm for 2.45 p.m. and I'm going to have you pop in a piece of gum. And then as simple as like, okay, I'm going to grab the M&Ms. Oh, but I have gum in. So I have to consciously think through, I'm going to take this out. Okay, cool. Or even as simple as like, I love James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. Like, how can we make it harder? The foods that you're mindlessly eating, like, can you just put them somewhere where you can't see or you just can't reach right away? I truly feel like many things like this, such like simple solutions are so helpful for many people. Yes. Make things inconvenient for yourself. Like that's like, if you do that, like I had this one client, she had like this obsession with gum. Like that's how she (laughs) ran from the other food is like with gum. And I was like, okay. So like, and I'm not talking like having a piece of gum to like combat and be more mindful when you're going to put something else in your mouth. I'm talking like 10 pieces of gum within an hour type of gum, like really needed it. So I was like, okay, wrap it in rubber bands or 
put it in a shoe box or um, like do something silly with it. Put it in a different type of container, like a tampon box, you know, and you have to carry that around with you. And it's like those little things, it's going to interrupt the pattern because you're going to think twice. Um, even something like, okay, every time I think about um, how, like, oh, every time I have a reaction, like I'm not good enough. Okay, how about we say the alphabet backwards, you know, before engaging in that pattern that usually occurs after. And now we have to think, and that, you know, goes back to just a mindfulness approach too. So yeah, the the gum tool, the the interrupting is setting the alarms, it's great. I love the idea of applying that to negative thoughts too before you actually just accept that that's true, because that's never a perspective I've heard, but that's super interesting. Thank so you. similarly, I'd love to dive into then. Tying your self-worth into your physical appearance, which I'm sure is something that I know you mentioned about something you struggle with. And I'm sure that it's something that you talk to a lot of people about. And again, I'm sure this could be like, this is so individual, this varies so much of a person. So feel free to go as deep or as broad as you want. But generally, any like main steps you'd like to take to approach this? Generally speaking, when we love ourselves, we're just naturally gonna be more inspired to take caring action for ourself. So if you are looking in the mirror and you don't like what you see, and that maybe is coming from because you don't look like how so-and-so looks who has other things in their life that you want, and now you're creating an association, you need to really step back and look at where that comparison is coming from. So looking at where the comparison is coming from is really important. Also starting your day with a form of self-love or being able to recognize self-love throughout the day, transforming self-loathing thoughts to self-loving ones. These are all really important steps to be taking. Now, if you're tying your self-worth to your physical appearance or a number on the scale too, start paying attention to positive and negative reinforcements that you may or may not be having or receiving. So let's say every time you step on the scale and you hit a new low, and you send this off to your coach and you're like, oh my God, I'm so excited. I just dropped X amount of weight. And then you're, everyone around you in your life is like, yay, this is so awesome. And your coach is like, keep up the good work, but we need to drop another X, Y, Z. And you're like, okay. And everything's focused on that. Well, then when you go in a building phase and you start gaining weight, do you really think your reaction is going to be like, yeah, I'm gaining? No, because you've been positively reinforcing weight loss for a long time. Um, or like if you look in the mirror and you associate some like more lines as being better or right. whatever might be, be aware of the positive and negative reinforcements and try to find like compassion and neutral statements, recognizing it as data or recognizing it as a response, something like a control variable rather than something worth like celebrating or denying. Okay. Okay. I love that. On a similar note then, when you're addressing someone that does like, I have a ton of negative self-talk. Are there like general action steps you give to address that? So a general action step would be to just write out all those common talk, you know, negative self-talk statements on one side of a paper and then on the other, you know, combative for that. Um, things like proving yourself wrong. So looking at the statement, what truth is there to this? Where did this come from? When did I decide this was true? Because a lot of times we realize like, oh, I just kind of pulled this out of thin air. Like I don't actually have a reason to believe this anymore. Or, oh, it's just a habitual thought I've created, but here's all the ways I've proven myself wrong about this. So I think, you know, finding proof and evidence uh, to 
you know, confirm or deny your statement is really important. If there's evidence to confirm it, like, Hey, own that. You know, if you are like, I'm a failure and that's because you keep setting yourself up for failure. Well, something needs to change. Don't be like, I'm not a failure. I'm awesome. And everything's perfect about me. Like that's not going to work. You'll never convince yourself of that because you'll keep failing because the habit's not there. The behavior's not there. <laughs> it has to be very much. It has to be based in reality. I love that. Though. I think that one of the craziest concepts for me was when I realized that all my thoughts aren't necessarily true. Like just because I think something negative about myself or like, fuck, I don't feel motivated today or whatever. It doesn't necessarily have to manifest itself into reality. So I, true. I know that was like, again, it's simple, but for me, it's like, oh shit. So really like I can choose to act completely contrary to whatever I'm thinking right now. Yes. And when we do that, we're literally changing our brain. Like I like to think of it like we're going down a, you know, when you're hiking on a mountain and you see all these biking trails and some of them get really, really deep from the same biker or the like groups of bikers going down it. It's like a neural pathway in our brain. The more we ride down that pathway, the deeper it's going to get. But as soon as you go just a little off, maybe the gravel's a little shaky. Maybe it doesn't feel as good, but time and time again, the more you do it, the stronger that pathway is going to become. So we really can change the way we think, change the way we feel and change our perceptions of ourselves, food, our goals, even coach changes. Like if you give your girl who needs to be on, let's say a more restrictive macro plan for a competition prep or something, and she immediately views a macro drop or anyone who's trying to lose fat, like immediately views a macro drop with the perception of now I'm going to be so hungry. But then they really take a step back and they're like, no, it only dropped like 10 grams of carbs. Like this doesn't mean I'm going to be insanely hungry. It's perception. And like you said, our thoughts aren't always true. It's just, you know, we're trying to protect ourselves. On a somewhat unrelated note, but just something that brought up because I, on a very similar note, this conversation, but also somewhat unrelated, a book I loved um, is Byron Katie's book, Loving What Is. And something I always recommend to my clients is she has a whole series of questions called the work that she goes through. Like anytime a negative self-talk or a negative thought or really any, like anything comes up that's creating like a angst for you or whatever. She has this whole series of questions you work through. Like, is that really true? Can I absolutely know that it's true? What would happen for me if this wasn't true? It's for me personally, I found it's been the most, one of the most helpful things. And I've, also one of my favorite books to send to clients that are struggling with similar, not really anything to add to this conversation, but just a side note. That's great. If you are struggling with it, that, that's something I would highly recommend grabbing. But um, past that point, last thing that I wanted to ask you about is for anyone that's entering the improvement season, they're in their off season. Um, we're likely going to see the scale going up or someone that like go to improve my physique for next I'm on stage or just for lifestyle purposes as a whole. Like, I'm likely to have to see the scale go up, but I'm afraid to eat a bit more. How do you typically go about addressing that mindset wise? I like to think of like long-term vision, long-term results, and also the reality of the situation. Like if you're really building and you know, the scale is going to go up, the scale is also probably going to fluctuate a lot in that building phase too, because of the different types of food you're going to be probably experimenting with, enjoying, et cetera. Um, so I like to, again, kind of reevaluate the perspective on the scale itself, never run from the scale. I'm a big believer in stepping on it. Definitely. Um, but also like 
when you're in an improvement season, think of that long-term vision. Do you really want to step on stage next time or see yourself next summer? And you're the same as now, if not worse, because you didn't take the time to grow. And it feels so good to be strong and have energy and like fill out your clothes too. Like there's so much benefit. So rather than focus on the concern of the scale going up, let's focus on the pros and the benefit of seeing the scale go up. What else could it maybe be representing or, you know, ignore it all together and just go, what other wins am I going to celebrate and focus on? Like, am I experiencing more social events or am I lifting heavier in the gym or what's that body and that vision I have? Like, that's like, there were so many times in my improvement season, I'm like, I'm building because there's no way I'm stepping on stage to look the same as I did two years ago. That would be so embarrassing for me, you know? Right. No, I get it. I love that. I, a building phase is very much the definition of delayed gratification, at least how I see it. At least, at least if we're talking about like specifically how your physique looks, because it's very much like short term, you're just going to look fluffier. You probably, like, from your own definition, you might not look as good, but long-term it's what's necessary to improve. Whereas like if we're choosing instant gratification, which is like trying to stay lean, shredded year round. Yeah, it feels good in the short term, but long-term, like you said, two years later, I still look exactly the same. So mm-hmm. I think the mindset there of like long-term, what do I want is crazy important. Yes, exactly. And trust yourself to not like lose control or like gain all those weight that you can never lose. Like if you've done it before, you can do it again. And if you have the right people in your corner, the resources, like if you're really in this, timing doesn't even matter, you know, the weight on the scale doesn't really matter. It's more about like, what are you getting out of each daily experience rather than focusing on the results so much? I think, you know, we can really focus more on like, the experience as a whole and like you said like that outcome too i love it i feel like all of this has been very very applicable i have no doubt the listeners will take a ton from this i want to be super respectful of your time because i know it's getting late there um before i let you go we just tell everyone where they can find you and anything at all you'd like to plug yes okay so you guys can follow me on instagram it's at celestial underscore fit my website is www.celestial.fit. There's a few freebies over there and ways you can work with me. There's different tabs for that. Um, if you're looking for like a self-help book or guide, I did have a number one bestseller called Believe Your Way to Badass. You can find that on Amazon. And um, my podcast is Confessions of a Bikini Pro. So lots of ways to connect. But honestly, Instagram and my website is great. You'll find it all there. So I will link all that up in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.